Hello, audience. Guess what? My family welcomed our fourth child into the world. I am so excited and exhausted. While I spend some time with my family and pamper my superhero wife, I wanted to share with you one of my absolute favorite episodes. Leave me a comment in the platform you are listening and share this episode with someone who needs to hear it. I will be back soon with a whole host of brand new episodes, but for now, enjoy Roofers United. This podcast is sponsored by the Roofing Alliance, advancing the roofing industry since 1996 through technology and research, philanthropy, and education. Learn more about the Roofing Alliance at roofingalliance.net. Welcome to the 12th episode in season one of Stories of an Extraordinary Industry presented by NRCA, the National Roofing Contractors Association. I am your host, Jared Ribble. Whew. We just came through quite the election season, didn't we? Half of the country feels hopeful and the other half fearful. Social media and cable news seem to work in tandem to feed our individual bias toward the other. And brick by brick, walls of division are being built. If you are disheartened by what seems to be the divided states of America these days, this story will be an encouragement to you. It was for me. And we all can learn something about turning really big dreams into reality. The big dreamer in our story is John Francis, the CEO of NV Roofing in Virginia. So I was 36, 37. Our office was in Falls Church at the time, and it was four miles from the Pentagon. You know, I was on my way to Annapolis, actually, when the first tower got hit. I'm an AM junkie, you know, listener. So I, I, I heard everything, you know, as it was happening, as I was driving. As soon as I heard that the second plane hit, I actually uh, did a U-turn onto the grass and then it came back home. I, I knew instantly that this wasn't an accident. 34 minutes after John did that U-turn, at 9.37 a.m. September 11, 2001, American Airlines Flight 77 would smash into the Pentagon, killing 125 people inside and leaving all 64 passengers on the plane dead. From his office in Falls Church, four miles away, John Francis could see the smoke billowing into the air. Shocked, of course. And then I remember being very, very angry. You know, once it was confirmed, we love the military. We love this country. We, uh, we bleed red, white, and blue. And so then it went to, well, what, what do you do when, you know, when you're in a crisis area? I want to go do something. And then I was on the phone with one of our sales folks. I said, we should replace that roof for free. Of course, not realizing there was over you know 40,000 square feet of, of, of roofing that needed to be done. We were, a, at that time, we were a small $5 million company and probably full of piss and vinegar. And I said, you know, we got to replace this roof for free. We got to show them that, you know, you're not going to make a dent in us. We're America. We can do anything. We can overcome this. I actually went up on the roof, I don't know, within six days after that and met with, you know, the head engineer out there and took several slate samples and, you know, I say, let's just get this done. And I honestly didn't know how the heck we were going to do it. Uh, I really wasn't even thinking that far ahead. I just wanted to. And we had no DOD experience. We had no uh, government uh, work at all at that time. It was a lot of single family homes and townhouses. They had so many different uh, rules and regulations. We were not built 
for crews to sit there for two to three hours every day to figure out how they were going to get into the gates that day. (laughs) John's dream may not have been right-sized for his own company, but John was not trying to serve his company. He was trying to serve his country. Too small be damned. He started making phone calls, and Bill Good, NRCA's CEO at the time, picked up the phone. A guy named John Francis, whom I had never met, and he said, I think we ought to do something as an industry, and our idea is to give back the roof to the Pentagon. What do you think? Let's show the world that you you can't put America down. You can attack us, but you're you're not going to slow us down. You're not going to stop us. You're not going to make us afraid. And I said, what a great symbol that would be to get this roof replaced for free, you know, that we as Americans come together and do this. What can you say? It's a great idea. I have no idea if we can do it, but at least I can ask some questions and start the process. So we have had a member who was part of the facilities management team at the Pentagon, and he's in charge of the roof. Don't know this guy either, uh, but I I have a name. So I call him, tell him what we're thinking about. And he says, "Um, I like your idea. I have no idea if it's possible, but I can get you a meeting. If you remember at the time, both of the D.C. airports were closed. But after a couple of weeks, I could fly into Baltimore, um, which I did with about four other passengers. (laughs) Escorted in, by the way, by F-15s. It was really, really pretty cool experience. But... Uh, I had a full-time security guy assigned to me who told me, um, I'm your new best friend because when you go to the bathroom, I go to the bathroom and, you know, we're, we're going everywhere together. It was still, at that time, it was still classified as an FBI crime scene um, because they hadn't made an official determination about what had happened. Everybody kind of knew what had happened, but it hadn't been officially ruled as a terrorist attack. Uh, that first day I got to go up on the roof. You could still smell stuff. Kind of weird to describe, but there was a distinct odor there. And I'm not sure what it all was. I'm sure part of it was just the smoldering remains of of the fires that were there. Um, There were windows blown out um, that were not even close to where the plane hit. So it had to have been a pretty significant explosion that happened. There was dust all over. There was um, plane debris still on the roof. They hadn't cleaned all that off. And I met with a woman. I don't remember her name. She was the colonel who was in charge of the rebuilding project. She knew a little bit about why I was there, but uh, we had a conversation Um, That was very one-sided, and she basically told me, um, I'm not interested in working with you. Uh, I have my orders, and my orders are to get this roof rebuilt, and if you in any way get in my way, um, you're going to become my worst enemy. (laughs) So pleasantries like that. So I said, okay, um, and went down, and we had a little meeting in a conference room, and uh, there was very little enthusiasm for any of this um, from the Pentagon. Good try, Bill. Thanks for the effort. John, it looks like your audacious goal of repairing the Pentagon roof has melted away. Wait, not yet. So I could fly back to Chicago and I called uh, Craig Brighto, who at the time uh, headed our Washington, D.C. office, um, related uh, what had happened. And uh, Craig said, well, let me let me try something. He said, we're pretty good friends with Congressman Tom Davis. 
Remember, Congressman Davis was on the Armed Services Committee, which has responsibility for the Department of Defense. So Congressman Davis, unbeknownst to us, writes a letter to Donald Rumsfeld, who's the head of the Department of Defense at the time. Stop and think about that for a second. One common man's dream made it all the way to the desk of Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. I had arranged to go back for a follow-up meeting a week later. Same security guy greeted me, same conference kind of room, and I had very low expectations. And I walk into a room full of maybe 25 um, Pentagon people, including attorneys, communications staff, um, logistics people, facilities managers, and my friend, the Colonel, who now is, oh, Bill, I'm so happy to see you again. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so the letter worked, <laughs> obviously, and Rumsfeld got to somebody and said, you need to work with these people and see if you can make it happen. And the group gets down to business planning. The next step in the process was identifying the contractor, called a bunch of members of ours in the DC area. And there was kind of a consensus that it ought to be uh, Jim Myers with James Myers Company, um, because he had the, uh, the scale to be able to do the work, had done work on the Pentagon, was familiar with the building, and was regarded, highly regarded by his competitors for quality work. Welcome to our story, Richard Myers of the James Myers Company. So he ended up calling my dad, and they didn't know each other before this. He asked him, he said, would you guys be able to help with this? His first reaction, he was a little bit skittish about it because he didn't know exactly how this was going to work. He understands how to do government work. So um, he, he had to think about it. We've done a fair amount of work for the Department of Defense as well, a good amount of work at the Pentagon over the years. Starting in the uh, 1990s, we did some roof renovation work. Part of the thinking was he was willing to, to you know, donate some of the resources of, of his business to be able to take this on. Um, but part of it certainly was um, he could take a significant hit if things went south. Um, and he knew that he was gonna be sort of in the spotlight too, which is both good and bad in those kind of circumstances. But he didn't think long. My dad said, let me call you right back. I'm gonna call my son and that's me. And he called me. And at first I was like, geez, what, what's gonna be involved in this? Can we handle this? And, and, and you know, I said, you know what? How can we say no to this? This is something we have to do. We have to help and we have to show that the NRCA is willing to help our country at a time of need. And that's that was the consensus between my dad and I. So he called Bill back and said, absolutely, we're all in. Richard and his dad agree to run point and get this job done for free. Before we get too far, we need to back up and understand the scope of the damage. Pentagon roof is a combination of flat area and some steep slope area along the corridor. The low slope area was primarily built up roof. A lot of it is old coal tar pitch. Some of it was newer asphalt built up roof. Everybody in the Pentagon believes the plane was headed for the White House and couldn't find it. It flew over the west end of the White House, which has trees. And so they believe they lost their visual contact with the White House, did a big loop around Highway 395 there, saw the Pentagon, which they think was their secondary target, and then went into the Pentagon. When the plane hit the Pentagon, it actually hit the ground and then was moving up as it hit the building. So a lot of the airplane, including a lot of jet fuel, landed on the roof. But the roof itself, um, 
like I said, the, the flat area of the roof was still okay because it didn't get, actually get punctured. The plane landed on it, and it, because the concrete deck was so significant, it didn't really puncture the roof or create a big gap in it. It just blew out this, that whole side of the building. What happened in the, on the steep slope part was that, uh, these quarters were all made out of uh, 18 inches of concrete, made them bomb-proof. And on top of the concrete, they had a plywood sleeper system. And on top of the plywood, they nailed slate. Um, so the, the plywood was there primarily to, to hold the slate. But they didn't build it um, in 1943 or whenever it was finished uh, with fire stops. So the plywood caught on fire on corridor one, which is where the airplane hit, and the fire started spreading down the corridor. The firemen who were on the roof at that time uh, were hosing down the slate, and the slate was doing its job, so it didn't do anything to stop the, stop the fire. So what happened was our friend who was the member, the facilities guy, was at home that day, got a call, came up on the roof and told them told the firemen to get 50 feet in front of the fire and cut it with an ax, cut through the slate and the plywood with an ax and stop the fire, which is what they did, or the whole building might have gone, or at least all the corridors uh, would have been in trouble. So anyway, we had to replace um, a bunch of slate, we had to replace a bunch of plywood, and we had to replace some built-up roofing. Not a job for the weak in the knees, and it would be the 33-year-old Richard Myers leading the charge. We will get into the details of re-roofing the Pentagon and how the materials were sourced through donations. But because of donations, this job almost did not happen. We will find out about that and more in a moment, but first. Hello, this is Kyle Thomas, president of the Roofing Alliance. I'd like to thank the NRCA for sharing this story of how the roofing industry stepped up and gave back in the rebuilding of the Pentagon after the attacks of 9-11. I'd also like to say thank you to the roofing professionals who are part of this incredible story. We are proud to know that many of them are also members of the Roofing Alliance, which is the foundation of the NRCA. For 25 years, the Roofing Alliance has been giving back through research, education, training, philanthropy, technology, and sustainability initiatives. Just as the industry came together after 9-11, the Alliance continues to help fund projects that promotes professionalism and enhances the reputation of the roofing industry. So if you're asking, how do I get involved with the Roofing Alliance? Well, it's simple, become a member. It's an investment that is a generational gift, encouraging young people to choose a career in roofing while elevating the professionalism of every company. If not membership, then consider helping with one of our many ongoing philanthropy projects or giving a financial gift to the foundation to help with scholarships and funding initiatives. Find out today what you can do to help shape the future of our industry at roofingalliance.net. On September 11, 2001, American Airlines Flight 77 was hijacked and slammed into the west side of the Pentagon, leaving 189 people dead and a roof ravaged from fire. It was the dream of John Francis to bring the roofing industry together to get the Pentagon's roof repaired for free. The problem is, in fact, doing it for free. Welcome back to our story, Bill Good. It's illegal to give a gift to the federal government. Which is a good thing if you think about it. 
the government cannot be beholden to an entity because they made sizable donations. Financial accountability is critical. Here again is Richard Myers. The idea was the NRCA was going to pay for all of the costs to fix the fire damage areas, but that turned into be a bigger nut than anyone thought. So Bill, you know, was very transparent and forthcoming and told the Pentagon officials that we would raise as much money as we could uh, and we'd be transparent about it and all those funds would get donated, whether it be materials or labor or hotels or people just donating money. So we came up with a system to, to track that. And that's kind of how it got started. Every time you get a donation of material, labor, or cash, give it to the contractor, have the contractor issue a credit to the general contractor. And they said, if anybody challenges this as being, you know, kind of a backdoor way to give a gift to the government, we're going to back off and stop everything. Um, but they said, it's so unlikely anybody will stop you from doing what you're doing that we're not too worried about it. The Pentagon had a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that the costs were, were verified and accounted for. Uh, and even though, you know, the NRSA was offering donations, it all had to be accounted for legally. So yeah, we were basically negotiating the job like it was a negotiated job and agreeing on fair costs to do the work. And then we all also had the donation element wrapped into it. They would just go through every line item and verify quantities and check costs and prices. And it was definitely a process because they wanted to make sure that they were doing a good job on accounting for these uh, rebuild costs which they did. The Pentagon is a historical building, a challenge to overcome when sourcing materials. They wanted exactly what they had to preserve the history. That slate came from Vermont. Vermont Evergreen Slate Company, they have the unfading green material. And uh, so Vermont uh, stepped up and, and they were able to quarry that slate for the project. And, you know, it was probably four or 500 squares. It was a significant amount of material. You know, you're, you're looking at 10 to 15 trucks of material. It was it was significant. And some of that was already uh, quarried and material they had above ground, but a good chunk of that they had to quarry and, and bring out of the ground and cut into uh, slate shingles and fabricate it and, and ship it to the job. So it was, it was a process, but they really, really stepped up. We needed a lot of plywood, and one of my favorite memories from that uh, whole experience was uh, I got a name at Home Depot. Didn't know him. He didn't know me. This was um, a guy who worked, I think, in their corporate social responsibility area, something like that. And I called this guy, and I said, um, here's what we're doing, and we need a bunch of plywood, and I wanted to see if you could help. He simply said, tell me how much you need and where to send it. And I said, you know, we might be talking about six figures worth of plywood, which I knew we were. And he said, um, okay, I'm going to tell you again. Tell me how much you need and where to send it. And a week later, $100,000 worth of plywood shows up at James Meyer's company. And that's the way it went. Nobody ever told me no. I asked a lot of people for money and material. The manufacturing community was unanimously great. Materials loaded at the shop. Let's get to work.
We, there were a significant amount of workers. I mean, locally, we probably had up to 50 workers. And then we had all, a slew of workers from uh, outside the area that came in from different parts of the country, probably another 20 or 30. The guy in Pennsylvania called me and he said, I understand you're looking for some labor on this Pentagon. And he said, uh, well, I'm a veteran. He was, I believe, in his 60s. And he said, you know, I haven't been on a roof for quite a few years, but I have to be on that job. You have to let me get on that job. And I said, well, if you're physically able to do it and, and can report for work, we can make that happen. And so he drove himself down to D.C. and spent about a month doing roofing work. The other one was a, um, a contractor in Wisconsin. He called out of the blue and he said, um, he said, I would like to help out on the Pentagon project. He said, uh, my son and I have this little business, uh, but we have an RV. So if you can find me a place that we can park our RV, um, we'd like to go work on the roof. Uh, I know that there's a Marriott Hotel right across from 395 from the, uh, from the Pentagon. I've got a friend who works for Marriott Corp, who I call at the time, and I tell him what we're doing and what we need. And he says, tell him to put the RV in, in our parking lot uh, we will run electricity out for him for the length of his stay, and we'll provide him and his son with meals as often as he wants. So it was that kind of response. I mean, it was just um, uh, everybody felt good about the undertaking. They came in, and, and we rotated the crews and found spots for them to work. And, it, it, you know, it ended up, it, it worked it worked out very well. And we got a lot of contribution from not only locally, but from, you know, out-of-state uh, contractors that, that came in and worked to help rebuild the roof, NRCA members. And then, the you know, getting these phone calls from contractors from literally everywhere wanting to be part of this somehow. Even if it was writing a check, but pretty much uh, everybody wanted to be part of this undertaking once they found out what we were doing. This is the Pentagon, remember? A person cannot just show up on the property and get access to the roof. It required security forms and fingerprints and badging and the whole nine yards before you could get in. But they expedited the process after 9-11. And I would say we were looking at a one to two week turnaround, which was rather good considering uh, what we had seen in the past from working down there. And also the ve vehicles, you know, every vehicle that goes down there has to go through a remote delivery facility, has to be checked for bombs and, and dogs and, and bomb sniffers and all that stuff before the vehicle could actually get on the campus and actually go inside the building. So that was all part of the process. Every truck, every truck shipment of materials, uh, drivers for those trucks had to be pre-screened, licenses and all that, the trucking companies. So yeah, it was a lot of paperwork, a lot of getting all the tags and the, the license numbers and social security numbers and all that submitted before you could set foot on site. The workers security cleared, they can get the job done. We actually went first because our work was on the existing structures that got charred and burned. And it was old wood. It was old wood that was used in the original construction to pour the concrete. So it was dried and, you know, when it lit, it, it just burned. Not much would stop it, you know. So they had to rebuild most of the wood framing that, that was underneath the slate. Um, so our work went first. I want to say it started a couple months after 
and it went into maybe the summer of the following year. Which means that they completed this project months ahead of the one-year deadline. Way to go, team! It's something I'm really proud of. I'm really proud of not only for my company, and, and but just the industry, the idea itself, just the thought and, and how it all came together. How it all came together was Richard managing this monstrous process, and he was only 33 years old at the time. Richard, you should be proud of this accomplishment, but let's not forget this job would not have been possible without the thousands of dollars of cash, material, and labor resources donated. You know who you are, and you are remembered. Bill Good, through your example, you gave us a masterclass in tenacity when bureaucracy and red tape try to thwart the dream. You showed us the simple lesson. Sometimes you just have to muster the courage to ask. Next year is the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and we considered holding this story until then. But with the pandemic raging and the division coming out of this latest election season, I want this story to be a reminder that the roofing industry is capable of putting down their swords and coming together for the good of the whole. The question is, who is the roofer out there full of piss and vinegar with an oversized dream to get it started? Follow the example set by John Francis and let's put the united back into the states of America. I'd like to give a big thanks to our guests on this episode, Bill Good, John Francis, and Richard Myers. You all are extraordinary roofers. Thank you for the courage to dream big and with tenacity finish the mission. The roofing industry is proud of you. We are currently producing episodes for season two. You have a story that we can learn from. Contact me at stories at nrca.net and tell me about it. Now, before I sign off, there is one more lesson I want to make crystal clear from the example of John Francis. 20 years ago, his company, Envy Roofing, did not have the thriving commercial roofing division they enjoy today. But that did not stop him from dreaming big. But it was what he did with the dream that matters. He was smart enough to seek out help and then humble enough to allow others to fill roles that he was not capable of filling. Big dreams happen with some help and a dose of humility. I am your host, Jared Ribble. Be well, be safe, be proud of this great industry. I would like to give the final word to the man who had the courage to dream big, a patriot, John Francis, as he describes what he sees when he drives by the Pentagon. I do drive right by it several times a year. When I drive by, I see America coming together. I see something that I was proud of, that I, I had a part in, and it reminds me of the great things this country has done and has the capacity to do. Hey there, if you are enjoying this episode, do two things for us right now. First, give it a rating or a comment in whatever platform you are listening in and share this episode with one person who needs to hear it. These two things go a long way in helping us continue to produce this content. And here's a little bonus from this story. What the uh, security guy, when I, because uh, I got to know him, I, I visited the Pentagon probably half a dozen times in the course of all this. So I got to know him pretty well. And I asked him um, ultimately where he was that day. 
and he told me um, that he was in a meeting in wing one, which is where the plane hit, um, but he had left his notebook back in his office. So he literally had left the meeting about a minute before the plane came in to go retrieve his notebook. And he said, by the time he came back, everybody in the meeting was dead. And he said the biggest problem they had was the jet fuel um, ignited and it was so hot that typical fire extinguisher couldn't do much um, to put it out. 